Let's pray, and then we're going to read and and dive into Luke chapter 9. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we um, open the Bible today and read this story, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning, um, that we would be able to almost go back in time and, and imagine, Lord, during this great event, Lord, what happened and what was felt by the people who were there. Um, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord. Um, we pray that you would remove the calluses that we have towards you. Um, this is a hard text, and it's challenging. And um, Father, I pray that you would use it in our lives, Lord, to draw us closer to you. Um, we love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them, not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake He is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these things were, wait, and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed, and they began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And Father, we do thank you for the story. Lord, help us now as we go through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it begins in verse 18 with this picture that, and it happened while he was praying alone. The account of Luke doesn't shed light on the location in Israel. But what we do know is from the other accounts that it happened in Caesarea Philippi. And I'm going to ask, Ben's going to kill all the lights for me. And I'm going to show you on this map. We're going to look at a little PowerPoint thing here. So this is Israel. To the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. There's a river that runs north to south into the Dead Sea. From Capernaum, this is the main where Jesus's operation happened most of his ministry. The story takes place up at Caesarea Philippi. There's three, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking? Springs that where water comes out of the earth, forms rivers, and then it feeds into the Sea of Galilee. This is where the water for the Sea of Galilee happens. And so at this location at Caesarea Philippi, this is what it looks like. Um, Next slide, please. Um, 
this is a little path. This is when I was there last fall. This is the walkway to get to the base of this cliff. At the base of this cliff is where our story happened. But this lush green foliage, this is where the springs of water come up from. Um, next slide. The water is absolutely beautiful. Um, I was there on a day like this when it's hot and muggy. And I wanted nothing more than to go jump in the creek and go swimming. But I don't think it was, I don't think they, I think I would have gotten kicked out, but I don't know. I didn't test it. So next slide of the water. So you have beautiful, clear water coming up out of the ground. Next slide. Um, another shot of the spring looking away from the cliff. Um, next shot. Another shot of the, okay, next slide. Self-portrait of me going down the path. Welcome to my vacation, guys. We, uh, there I was. Okay, next slide. So at the base of the cliff, there's a sign that explains what, what's on the cliff. So this is the cliff. This is what it would have looked like during Jesus' time. You can see a huge, I mean, these are people down here. So this is a huge um, rendering of these buildings. Um, or the buildings were huge. It's a rendering of these huge buildings is what I should say. Um, these buildings were dedicated to false gods, like the gods of Pan, the gods of the underworld in, in Israel in a desert, wherever there's fresh water, that's a very valuable commodity. And so here where this fresh water was coming up, they had this pagan place of worship where they worshiped the gods of the underworld that were providing all of the stuff for them. Um, so you have these huge temples all along the cliff here. There's actually carvings that they had um, to the various gods. So next slide. So here's the cliff today. You can see the remnant one pot pillar of the old um, building there. And then next slide is a close-up of that pillar. And that's huge. I mean, you're talking like that's taller than a single person. So this was a huge structure. Um, next slide. So this is looking at the cliff. You can see carvings into the cliff of places where they would have, that were there to worship the gods. Um, next slide. So here's the base. There's a walkway. Notice the lush green foliage. Um, this would have been a very busy place during the story um, of today's story where Jesus was. Um, so here's a little wheel thingy. There's sand in there. And as you roll this thing around, it kind of places a stamp of the verses that in Matt, found in Matthew chapter 16 of today's story in, in five different languages. Go a little bit closer. So it's kind of you show it going around. This, is, this has nothing to do with the story, but just to kind of show you if you go there what you'll see. And closer, please. Next slide. And so it kind of leaves the text of Matthew chapter 16 of um, Peter's proclamation of who Christ is. Um, next slide. What do we have here? So this is just kind of going back, looking towards the cliff of the area that we're there. Now, next slide. Uh, there's, there's a falafel. After you're here, this is the closest restaurant, a falafel and a Coke. Next slide. There's a closer look. I'm really hungry right now, so this is looking good. Okay, next slide. Hey, who put that in there? They have ice cream, so that's my eating my ice cream cone there at the shop. Okay, next slide. All right, so we're back here. So we're up at Caesarea Philippi. So hopefully that was helpful in like showing you guys that's the location where this story happens. And so when it says in verse 18 that it happened while he was praying alone, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was in some secluded spot where there were no people. It means that he was here in this spot where there was all kind of activity and people coming to worship. He had the disciples. He probably found a, a lush spot off the beaten path, and he's there praying. And at this point, it says that um, he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? Now, to look back at the whole chapter of chapter 9, this story of chapter 9 begins with Jesus sending the disciples out, 12 disciples in groups, two by two. They were to go out into all the villages proclaiming the gospel. Um, they went out alone. They carried nothing. They didn't have their American Express cards. They didn't have um, any resources. They just were totally relying upon the Lord. He gave them power. They're healing people. They're curing diseases. They're um, people that are sick. They're, they're, they're making well. If, if they were rejected, they were just supposed to wipe dust, shake their boots off, and leave the town. They'd come back. They'd reported the things that had happened. A crowd ensues, 5,000 men, upwards of 20,000 people, including women and children. The sun was setting. As the sun setting, the, 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 the disciples are saying, we got to get these people out of here. There's, there's, there's no food. 
And Jesus says, well, what's available? A little boy produces five loaves of bread, equivalent of what would be five pitas in our thinking, and two little sardines. And Jesus multiplies this to them. And they're out serving all of these people this food. In verse 9, as they are going out, Herod, the Tetrarch, had heard about what was happening. And he starts asking the question, who is this man that I hear such things? It's like, it can't be John the Baptist. I put him to death. So Herod's asking the question, who is Jesus? The apostles are going out. They're hearing all of this chatter. They're, they're serving the bread. And Jesus says to them, who do the people say that I am? Like, as you're out, like, what, what are people saying about me? And their response is fascinating. We're told that in verse 19, they answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Matthew, it says, they include Jeremiah in the list. And I find this fascinating. When Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? As the apostles are out in the community of all of everything happening, there's not, they're not saying, oh, they say that you're a crazy man and you're, you're a scammer, um, you're a whack job. They're saying, John the Baptist Literally the last prophet that, from the Old Testament that walks onto the pages of the New Testament that was prophesied in Malachi. They say, Elijah, the guy who ended up in heaven, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, as they looked at the life of Jesus and the things that he was doing, the only human response was, this is somebody, this is a prophet, he's doing amazing stuff. And this question is totally relevant to today. As we go about our culture, what are some of the things that people say about Jesus? You guys can help me out here. What are some of the things we hear about Jesus? A good teacher. Anybody heard that one before? He's a great teacher. Not God, but a good teacher. What other things do we hear? If you guys are shy, I can help you guys out of here. A myth. A myth. That's it. We hear that. That it's a fable. Didn't, he didn't exist. Prophet, a good teacher. I've heard a great businessman. Look at how much money he was able to make in all these businesses that he produced. That came from a rabbi I know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, he, never mind. <laughs> yeah, Dave. A, a good moral leader. Yeah, gave us a bunch of good wisdom. And so you have all this stuff. We get this today. And then Jesus turns and he looks at him and he says, but who do you say that I am in the midst of all of this? And Peter responds in verse 20 and says, the Christ of God. Like Peter's totally the hero or the hobo. He's only the extremes. Like there are times when he just nails it. And Luke doesn't really cover this full account, but if you want to go over to, to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew kind of, we're going to go back and forth a bunch of times, so I hope you got your bookmarks. But Peter gets it. He says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one that's been promised from Genesis chapter 3, all through the Old Testament, you're here. You are the Messiah, Messiah in Christ, same thing, one's in Greek, one's in Hebrew. You're the promised Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter with this. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, Peter, your response is spot on. And you didn't figure this out by your own wisdom, your own intellect. The Spirit of God, the Father, enabled you to understand who I am. He continues. He said, I say to you also, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. So when he starts talking about the future church, he says, I will, the church isn't established at this point. And we lose through, in the English, Peter means small rock and rock is big rock. And they're standing at the foot of a huge cliff. That's a big rock. And he says, on your proclamation that I'm the Christ, this is what the church is built upon. 
that Jesus is Christ. He's Lord over all. In Ephesians, we're told that this is the cornerstone that the apostles and prophets built upon. Every church that's a good church will stand on Christ alone. That's the key. He goes on to say, on this rock, the proclamation that you are the Christ, the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. They're standing there in the midst of pagan worship. Huge crowds going through, making sacrifices, doing whatever to the gods of Pan and the underworld where the water's coming from. He says the gates of Hades will not prevail it. And we take this as the church so often looking at this, we think, okay, hell cannot overtake the church. We've got our big walls. We'll stay protected. We'll stay isolated. But a gate, the city wall, this is when you were under attack. This is what would protect the city. And so when Jesus says this, that puts the church as, a, as an offensive weapon. And he looks at all the gods. He says, the gates of Hades will not overcome me. I am God. I am Christ. And I am over all. And I just kind of see Peter going, oh, okay. Oh, like, like, I got the part. I didn't get all of that other stuff. And then right from this, I could just see the look in their eyes. Okay, we're going to go tell everybody you're going to become king. We're going to go. And he tells them to be silent. He, he shifts the message. He begins to tell them. Matthew says that from this point on, he began t- teaching them about his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, uh, verse 21, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and raised up on the third day. This would be like, wait a minute, you're the Christ. You're overall. And Peter's like the kid in class who got one right answer. Now he's all really confident with himself. I don't know very many people that said, hey, would you like to take God in a corner and scold him to rebuke God? I know I wouldn't. But in Matthew chapter um, 16, verse 22... Luke doesn't really say what happened from this point. But Peter, when he gets word that Christ is going to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and to be raised on the third day, he takes them aside. And he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Well, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He says, not you, Jesus. They won't kill you. If they come after you, I'll stand. I'll go down dying protecting you. (laughs) Really, Peter? Well, when we get there, I don't want to ruin the ending, but Peter's going to deny him three times. By the last time when the girl comes up to him, one, one of the authors of the gospel says that Peter started swearing and cussing to let them know that, oh, I'm not really with that guy. Where was your courage, Peter? And I think this story kind of hit him on that third time when the crow or the rooster crowed And he starts weeping to realize everything that had culminated up this point. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he says, Peter, you're looking at things through your own lens. The reason you don't want me to go is because you kind of have this small picture of what life's all about. You need to look at the big picture of what God's doing. And the big picture is that God loves man, that in our separation and our sin, that he loves us so much that Jesus came to die for us, that our sin would be placed upon him, that we could have a relationship with God. From this verse 23, this, this he's teaching about the resurrection, his, his death, his impending death and resurrection. And we read, and he was saying to them all, now who's the all? In Matthew 8, you don't have to go there, 34, we're told by Mark. In Mark 8, 38, it says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them. So at this point, he's told the 12 about his upcoming death, burial, resurrection. And then there's a whole crowd of people there. Some of them, maybe they thought, oh, here's Jesus. We've heard a lot about him. And they're kind of like coming close to him. And Jesus gets everybody, including the 12, 
And he begins sharing this next section that is very difficult, not so much to understand, but to apply. Like all week, this has been like this tug of war in my mind. Like I understand what this is, but Lord, I'm like, how in the world am I going to meet this mark? And this whole crowd is there. And Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, they're following Jesus. There's these crowds that have been following me. Okay, hey, if you guys want to come after me and follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, we kind of lose, like, this is kind of lost in translation. Pick up your cross and follow me. The, the cross has become like a good luck charm. It's the thing we wear around our, you know, necklaces. We get, people have tattoos of it and just stuff. Like, we put it on the back of our car and it's like, oh, the cloth. It's like almost like a good luck charm. It's a piece of jewelry. But then when he's speaking this, the cross wasn't that yet. What was the cross? It's what the Romans used to execute people. They would take the crossbeam, which was way bigger than this. And when a condemned prisoner was walking to the place he was executed, he'd have to carry this crossbeam. It was a brutal march. And the crossbeam showed that Roman law had said that this guy's guilty, condemned. They would take him to the, and execute him. Hundreds of thousands of people were executed by the cross. In today's time, if, if Jesus was saying this today, he'd say, hey, pick up your noose or pick up the, the needle that they use at the gas at Sam Quentin to execute people. Like that doesn't like I have no idea what the prosperity gospel people that you see on TV, like 80 percent of like Christian television is these guys that say. Just come to Jesus. He's going to restore your life. He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And this begins by you giving me a check. And God's going to take it. He's going to shake it up and scatter around and scatter out and multiply you. And your whole life's going to be better. Like we hear it all the time. Jesus gets the crowd. And he says, if you want to follow me, deny, deny yourself. Pick up the thing of execution that's used for killing you daily and follow after me. And I'm sure a lot of people are in the crowd like, I'm out of here. Like the story, we're going to see pictures of this coming up. The rich young ruler, Jesus, what do I have to do? Well, keep the law. Oh, I've done that. Give everything you have away and follow me. I can't do that. Like he challenges people. Like Jesus isn't just, he didn't die on the cross to give us fire insurance. Oh, you make a profession when you're seven years old and then live your whole life the way you want to live it. And then you're good to go when you get before. No, he died on the cross and he wants us to follow after him. He's saying this as he's beginning to go to Jerusalem to face his own death. They have the sins of the world placed upon him. Like this is challenging. To me, at least, I don't know about you. Maybe you guys have it all figured out, but I, I don't at this point in my life. He goes on to say, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Like in reading the commentators, there's a lot. I chose one and I, I still don't know if I'm going to read this. Like I, I question my motive in choosing. I mean, the guy's reputable. It's John Corson. And am I choosing this because it like makes the pill kind of a little bit easier to swallow in looking at this verse? So I kind of read this hesitantly. But he says this, Jesus burst on the scene with a revolutionary concept, never before heard in any spiritual teaching or philosophy, when he said, if you want life, lose it. The more you let go of yourself, the happier you'll be. The more you give yourself away, the richer you'll be. The key is to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow me. He said this, not to torture or to torment us. He said this to liberate and bless us. Whoever lives for others and takes his eyes off himself will discover the truth of Jesus' words. So I kind of like that, but I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And it makes, you know, I, I don't know if it's, you know, if, I'm, if I really want that to be the explanation. But when I look at that explanation and I see this verse and I look to people who live like this, where they just deny themselves and they give of themselves and they put others first, I see some truth in this. 
Years ago, they were really popular, you know, the WWJD bracelets, T-shirts, everything. What would Jesus do? I changed the bracelet. To me, when I see those, it says, what would John do? Not John Deere, John do. My father-in-law, John Hilton. Like, for, like in my, he kind of groomed me in becoming a pastor, and he is a guy who is, like, I've probably known him for, I don't know, 12 years now. Just sacrificial in his giving to us. Like, you, like I broke down in Bakersfield. I'm like, oh, we broke down. We're going to have to get a rental car. Oh, don't get a rental car. I'll come pick you up. John, we're in Bakersfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be there in like three hours. Okay, we'll be waiting at McDonald's or wherever we, wherever we were on the side of the road in Bakersfield. Over, what? What? Bob and Jim's repair shop. I got a transmission there. It was actually a pretty good deal. Um, but it's like over and over and over. Do I see him just like, I look at him and go, man, he's like, he's going to have to like, I, like I look at him and say, man, he's got to take care of his own, man. He, he got to give himself a break. But then I find like going through my life when I'm faced with these things or these phone calls or these decisions, I look at my WWJD bracelet and I think, what would John do in this situation? And I'm like, John would go. And then I, I end up going. And as I look at him and his life, like what I've seen is as, as we give, as we look to others, as we care about other people, then you develop like this whole network of people. And John's like one of the most loved men I know. Like anybody here that knows him is like nodding. He's going to be here tonight at the baptism. He's going to be speaking in Espanol for those in Spanish service that are getting baptized. But when I've seen him have a need, like he broke down a Castaic. There was like three people offering to like go pick him up. Like he had everybody. And so it's kind of like when you put others first, it's amazing how God uses that in our life. And we don't, it's not, Jesus isn't the rabbit's foot, you know, that we have on our keychain. If you rub it, you get good luck. That we use Jesus to the means to the end. Jesus is the end. He's God. And we come to him. And as we come to him and we submit to him and as we live our life in the way that he wants us to live it, good things start to happen because we're living in a way that's against our culture, against our sin nature, and we're allowing God to guide us in God's ways best. He knows what's best for us. And then Jesus goes on to say, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he appears in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Like I read that and I think, there are so many times when people come to me and ask questions like, about the Bible, like hard stuff. And I know what the Bible says. And I know that the answer necessarily isn't going to be, like it's not going to go down well. Like I know that in, in sharing what the Bible says, it's not going to go over. And there's like that side of me that wants to like cushion it or adjust it. You know, maybe they'll, maybe, uh, oh, they debate over what that says. And I'm challenged with this a lot to say, no, like it's not, this isn't my opinion. I have a heart, but this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus spoke. There are other times when I look at this verse going, Lord, how do I deny you? And there are times when I sit down somewhere and it's, I'm by myself and I'm in public and I'm at a restaurant and food comes. And I think, I can just pray with my eyes open and while I'm chewing and stuff, no big deal. It's totally can happen. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong. Like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But when in my heart it's saying, man, if I bow down in front of all of these people who are like, like my buddies and I like, oh man, that's embarrassing. Well, then that condition my heart, like denying, I don't want to bow because of that, because I'm ashamed of Jesus. Not because of like, no, I want to really try to, you know, there's a big difference and it's all in the heart. And I don't know what areas you struggle in, but this isn't, these aren't easy words that Jesus is commanding here. And he says, for whoever denies me, when I'm going to deny them in the, in the glory of the Father. And he kind of gets in this talk about the glory of heaven and, and his true nature as God, what his state is. And he transitions into verse 27 where he says, but I say to you truthfully, 
There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So in this group of people, within that group, there's the disciples. And I think what he's talking about is three disciples in this group, Peter, James, and John. They were three of them that they're not, they're going to be living and see the kingdom of God, which goes into the next story. And I don't like, okay, some of us will see the kingdom of God, whatever that means. I don't know. Then some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And so he takes these three guys. He leaves the rest of the disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them to this mountain. We don't know where the mountain is. There's two different suggestions of what it is. A number of people believe it's up here in the very north or top right corner, which is northeast of Israel here, Mount Hermon. A number of people believe that this is the mountain that this happened at. Other people believe that Nazareth, here's the Sea of Galilee, just to the east of Nazareth is a mountain called Mount Tabor. And if you're in Israel, it's like there's a big flat thing and there's one hill there, and that's Mount Tabor. It's very obvious. Um, We don't know where this mountain is, but Jesus takes these three guys to this mountain to go pray. And as, uh, verse 29, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. The other gospels refer to this as the transfiguration. They say he was transfigured, which is a word um, in the Greek that sounds like the word. It comes from the word metamorphosis. When there's a change, that something comes out of something. And so the picture is there Jesus is in his humanity. He'd given up his, his, all of his divine glory, if I'm wording that correctly, and he lets it come out what was inside of him. And it says that his face changed, and he literally was this bright white glowing. And it's crazy. When you look at, we're not going to go there, but in Romans 12, 2, it says, um, well, verse 12, 12, 1 says, um, um, Brethren, by the mercies of God, I ur- brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God um, to offer your lives as a holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Verse 2 then says, um, Be not... Um, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and prove what the will of God is. That word transformed is transfiguration. Same word used here, which is powerful. You look at this and Jesus is showing his divinity. And we're told that by renewing our mind, by not being conformed to the world and growing in our walk with the Lord, that same thing in Christ, we have new natures that we can allow to come out. It's powerful. And so there he is, he's glowing. And all of a sudden, verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Like, I so wish I could have seen this. Like, so there's Jesus in his, like, glory. Elijah and Moses show up. And I'm like, I mean, are they, they they don't, but it's like, I'm imagining me like having coffee with somebody. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm getting ready to go on a little road trip. We're going to Creston next week, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're about to go to like Jerusalem to be crucified. You're going to depart from here like this, like this conversations happening about what Jesus is about to do. My brain can't wrap around this. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, which happens to people in church a lot. There's a biblical case for getting sleepy, I guess, you know, all over the place. <clears throat> but when they were fully awake, so here they're drowsy, they're praying, which is going to happen again later. They kind of wake up. They see these three guys. They see it's Jesus, and they see Moses and Elijah, and they go from being sleepy to fully awake, like somebody threw water on them. What are we seeing? And he saw his glory and the two men standing with him in verse 33. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make these three, make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I love Peter. He like sees them. He says, oh, Jesus, it's so good that I'm here. It's your It's a great thing that I'm here because now we can make three tabernacles. I'll build one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Oh, you're in luck. I just happened to be here. And I love it, not realizing what he was saying. It's like, Peter, maybe you should have just bowed down and worshipped and kept your mouth shut. 
Like, just because you answer that he's the Messiah, don't get a little big for your britches, like Hagen, their sport. But he says this stuff. And as he's speaking, the story's going to develop even further. We're told that a cloud, like, engulfs them. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Over in Matthew chapter 17, it says that as this cloud envelops them and God the Father speaks, they're terrified. And the Greek word for terrified is literally terrified. They're horrified. Like they think they're going to die. Terrified, begging for mercy. Like I am a man and this is holy God. And God speaks out of this cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And chapter 9, this theme develops. It goes from Herod asking, who is this guy? To Jesus asking, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then God speaks, this is my son, listen to him, obey him. And in the story in Matthew, they're on their faces, not looking up, which is how the scripture records every person who sees God at at our level. Their reaction, total fear. And they're there with their heads covered. People leave. And Jesus, we're told, Matthew goes up to them, puts his hand on them, and says, don't be afraid. They look up, and it's just Jesus standing there. And I love this, that God is so holy and mighty, and that our our mediator is Christ. And this picture shows that, you know, like, here Jesus is able to bring them in the presence and comfort them. And then verse 36, when the voice um, and when the voice and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and reported it to no one in those days. Any of the things which they had seen. And it makes me wonder, like you see that I would think I'd come down the mountain and be like, guys, do you know what just happened up there? You're not going to believe it. There's no way you're going to believe this. They kept silent. Now, why would they keep silent? Well, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell down. Okay, wait. I'm sorry. That's the other one. Verse 9. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He says, Keep your mouth shut about what you've seen. Don't say anything until I've resurrected. In the Gospel of Matthew, they said, Resurrection? And then they start asking all these questions about the resurrection. Like, what about this? What about this? And Jesus says to, like, keep quiet. And I can't imagine them, like, walking back to the guys. You know, the three then get connected with the other nine. And I just picture them kind of, like, dazed and confused, like, we don't even know what's going on here. And sometimes God's word does this to us. Like, we look, I've been reading this. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one that will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Like, Lord, how? does anybody here feel confident, like, raising their hand, just like, that you're making this mark? Like, this is like, if we're honest with ourselves, this is one of those that's just like, Lord, help. During second phase of, of SEAL training, one of the hardest evolutions that we go through, other than Hell Week, a lot of guys go away, is called pool composition. And pool composition is, it sounds like English composition, you know? It's like, that sounds nice. Like, go to a swimming pool, you compose some. What pool composition is, they should call it the near drowning experience. It's to transition from the open circuit rig that, you know, open circuit means that when you exhale, bubbles come up, to closed circuit, which means all of the air stays in so you don't make bubbles. And this is a transition. They don't even make gear like this anymore. Um, aqua lung continues to replicate um, their gear for us from like the 1940s so that we can do this evolution. They only make it for us. And the old Jacques Cousteau movies, you know, where they have the double scuba tanks on their back and the the hose that comes around the back, you inhale out of that one and you exhale the other one, and then the bubbles go up the back. That's the gear we use. And so you put this gear on and you go into like 10 or 12 feet of water and there's a black line on the bottom of the pool. They put a mask on you that's blacked out. And all you're supposed to do is crawl along the bottom. You walk to the one end. 
You walk to the other end on your hands and knees, just waiting. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the instructor to come down and basically beat you up horribly, toss you around, rip off your mask, take off the gear. There's like five different levels. And you do this the first time, you get a punch in the face, your mask comes off, you're spinning around. And then you go through your system, you get everything hooked back up, and you give the, I'm good to go. Instructor gives you a good go. Keep crawling. Keep crawling. And he comes up. Then he, like, ties the hose in a knot. You get it all put up, and you're no, oh, no. So you have to take the thing off, and you have to, you have a little string of bubbles going up to the surface, and you're, like, trying to breathe off of those, trying to get your system. Then you put it back on. You give the thumbs up. Then you go the last round. They shut you all the way down, and you're like gasping for air. Finally, at the end of it, you give the instructor the whole, and the instructor says, okay. And you have to kiss the ground, and then you float to the surface, and you go sit on the edge of the pool. And while you're sitting on the edge of the pool, they're kind of watching to make sure that they didn't like kill you. Like they have to watch you, like no air gas embolism. And I just remember sitting there with like two other guys that went through the same thing, like seeing stars gasping for air. And I remember having this profound thought, and I lean over to my buddy, and I say, air is really good. (laughs) He's like, like, yeah, I was like able to get air off this little trickle of air. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're making it work. And just kind of like sitting there, like, what happened? Did we pass? How did the one guy do that to us? Like, how did he inflict so much misery? And there are times when I feel Like I come to the word of God and all I'm doing is sitting on the the edge of the pool going, what just happened? Like how, how in the world, like to pick up my cross daily? Like how, Jesus, how do I do this? And my profound statement about error is good. The only thing I can say to us is Jesus is good. Like we need to hold on to him tightly. And I think he says stuff to us and say, Lord, I need you. I don't, I don't know how in the world am I, like all I know is I need you and you're the answer. And I want to do this, but I need your help. And it reminds me, turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. Keep your plate. Yeah, you can just go to Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, this is the great Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not like the other apostles. He was the only one that was educated. He was, he was as far as pedigree goes, as far as maintaining the law Before he encountered Jesus, he would have stood before God with a straight face and said, I'm sinless. I've kept the law perfectly. And pick up with me in verse 4 of chapter 3. Paul says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in that flesh, I far more. He's dealing with people who are telling you, you can do it by religion. He was battling the Pharisees. They had come in behind him and they told him all this stuff. And Paul said, no, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. But they're saying, no, I'm a Pharisee. Listen to me. Do all of this religious stuff and you'll be good with God. And see, the whole picking up your cross, it's not about salvation. We're saved by grace totally and completely through faith in Christ. He did it all. But Paul continues, if anyone has the mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5 circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless. Those are his credentials. There was no other human during that time or probably, like, I don't know, in history that could match Paul's credentials. Verse 7, but listen to what he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. That word rubbish is dung, manure. We can say that in Valley Center. So that I may gain Christ. He's like, all of this stuff, all of my life, everything I held on to security, all I need is Jesus. That stuff is garbage. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God 
on the basis of faith, that I, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, all I want is Christ. And I love verse 12. Don't get all discouraged. Like, notice verse 12. And I'm not going to go to the rest of the book, but I could. Not that I've already attained it. Paul says, I haven't. I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained it. But I press on to the upward call of Christ. And as I look at this passage and this, this, man, Luke's going to keep taking the gospel and he's going to up the notch on us. He said, Christian, it's not about fire insurance. Jesus wants your life. He wants you to follow him. He wants a relationship with you. Not because he's trying to hold you down, but because he knows the way to life and joy and contentment. Follow him. It's going to cut across everything you know. And as I close this story, like looking at this, like between the, the proclamation that Jesus is Christ, the transfiguration, there's a couple of things that I've been pondering. And I probably continue to ponder. I don't have the answer to all of these. But the first is, who do you say that Jesus is? Like, have you come to the point where you know that he is Lord? That he's Christ, that he's God, that he's over all? I don't know where you are, but I know God is working with you to reach that place in your life where you could say that. And that's why I'm excited about, like, the baptism. I don't do a bunch of, like, altar calls, like every service. But what I want is the people to like up the ante in their life. I got through the, through the, like a little bird told me this weekend after VBS. I heard from one of the young ladies that attended VBS. She says, oh, we've been to a lot of VBSs, but man, they sure do know how to have a good time. And they really take the Bible seriously. <laughs> and I wasn't doing the teaching just for the rest. But, but that there's a culture at this church that, no, the Bible is important. And we don't have to, you know, like Charles Swindoll, look like we've been baptized in lemon juice. Like the, the solution to, to happiness and contentment and joy is found in here and following after him. And I asked myself this week, and I'll continue as I look at this, is, Lord, how am I denying you? Am I ashamed of you? Are there areas in my life? And back to the baptism thing. This is what I love about it. Like Joanne's here, so I'm looking at Joanne. This is your baptism class, you know. She's already went through it. But like Rick or Steve always says, oh, I come to these seas and I like start crying like a baby. And the reason we cry like a baby, the people who haven't trusted in Christ don't cry like babies. It's people who have like done the walk and professed and fallen on their faces before the Lord. Like, Lord, you're Lord. And so we see people make that step. No, I'm following after you. He said, go therefore and make disciples. Baptize them in front of everybody. But when we see the, all baptism is, you're literally going to put on a bathing suit, a t-shirt, and I'm going to sit there and dunk you under water. I'm not even going to do any Navy SEAL moves to like make you tap out or anything. Like I just go down, you come up, everybody claps, give you a big hug, and everybody's, it's really not that big of a deal. Like if you just, the mechanics of it, but the spiritual battle and the implications behind this are huge. I tell you all the excuses I made for not being baptized. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I was baptized on the eighth day or whatever day it is. I have pictures. The guy was rubbing some water on my head. I'm good to go. Did you trust in Jesus at that point? No, no, no. But I'm a Christian now. Like, I'm good now. And I'm just basically going to play that forward because I have the pictures. I made all kind of stuff. And it was my pride, my rejection of Christ saying, no, Lord, I'm like, to get baptized, isn't that like taking a step backward? No, it's a step forward. Because saying, Lord, I'm obedient. And it's powerful when we see people doing this. And it's exciting and I'm excited to see God, God's like moving in Joanne's life. And I'm really excited. And little Isabel, like it's going to be a big tear fest for me at least. And so we're going to take communion. And what we're going to do is Rick's going to come and he's going to just, I'm going to pray. Um, the communion's up here. I'm going to get it ready. And I just ask that you like bow your heads and ask God, like, where are you in your relationship with him? Like, how do you, like, what do you need to do to, what does picking up your cross daily look like? Because we take this little cracker, 
But this little cracker, I'll get mine right now. Everything goes, it's a little cracker. It's lunchtime. We're all starving. This is edifying to my stomach right now. But that's not what communion is about. It's broken. This symbolizes that Jesus, what he talked about, that he's on his way to Jerusalem, that he would go there. He would be mocked. Soldiers would spit on him. They would put a robe of purple on him, put a crown on his head made of basically something that was harsher than, than a rose bush, push it into his head to where it hit the bone in his skull and he'd bleed. They whipped him to tear flesh off of his body. The scripture tells us that his body, you couldn't even tell if it was a man or a woman at the end of the beating. And then at that point, he had to pick up his cross and carry it till he couldn't carry it anymore. And Simeon came and picked up the cross and carried it. And then they popped his arms out of the socket and nailed rail. Like, we're not talking like eight penny nails. We're talking railroad ties that they put into his wrist so it wouldn't slip off of his hands. And then a railroad tie through both feet into the cross naked. See, I was raised in the Catholic church where there's that little cloth. He's naked, bloody, dying. Why? Because he loves me. He loves you. He took your sin. He took my sin. That's what this little cracker's about. We take this because we remember what he did for us. And the Jews, he rose from the grave. There's new life in him. We want to follow him. And so we're, he's going to play the old rugged cross. And think about what communion is in light of this passage. And I can, I can hardly tell you what, I'm, what it means to my life, so I can't tell you what God's tell, doing in your life, but I just ask you to ask God. Ask him, Lord, what do you, I, I want to give you my life. Show me the next step. And Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are God. We thank you, Lord, um, for what Jesus did. Lord, as I hold this little cracker on my, in my hand, Lord, Lord, we'll never know how much it cost, as that song says. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us this gift of salvation, that it's not on works, that you paid it all, and we receive it freely. That we're saved by grace, we stand in grace. You love us, Lord. And I just think of that that lady, I think it was in John chapter 8, the sinful woman who came up to you and broke down crying and just moved by your love. And Lord, we come, we give you thanks, Lord, for, for redeeming us, for changing our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, um, to put you first in our lives. Help us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.